0: I think you got the memo, but children are excused to the children's church, if that's what you'd like to do. I want to mention a couple things uh, before we get started. We've been working our way through the book of Judges, and we have two sermons left in the book of Judges. But we're pausing now to be in the book of 2 Timothy, because this week our church is hosting the Charles Simeon Trust Workshop on Biblical Exposition We're going to be having uh, 115, 120, somewhere in there, uh, pastors and teachers gathering together to study the book of 2 Timothy. And many of you have uh, been a part of making that happen, whether you're bringing some goodies or some uh, baked dishes, uh, whether you've been praying for that, whether you're hosting pastors in your home. Some of you have sponsored people from Quebec, pastors from Quebec, so they could come. So um, this is a church-wide endeavor. And we're glad uh, to be doing this. Please be in prayer for this week. I'm going to be preaching from this same passage to those men on Wednesday. And I thought it would be good for our church to hear from 2 Timothy. Because uh, that's where uh, our our facilities and our efforts will be pointed this week. The other thing I wanted to point out is, is unrelated. Um, but I think it's an important thing to know. That um, for the for the past few summers, we as a church have had... Uh, summer student workers is part of the Canadian or the Canada uh, Canada Jobs Program. That's not the right term for it, is it? Um, but where they provide funds so that uh, students can get employment over the summer. Um, this year, the government mandated an attestation, a values attestation, that you have to, as your charter, be committed to abortion and be committed to homosexual rights. And uh, because we weren't able to affirm that, um, we were denied workers for this summer. So we're continuing on. We're not going to cancel any of our programs. Our, summers, our, our summer camps and our VBS are still going on. But what that does mean is we need some of you to step up. Um, if the government wants to treat us that way, that's their choice. But that's not going to stop the work of God. So if you're able to, uh, there is a sign-up table in back. Next to the uh, workday table, there's the summer camp Uh, table, so you can sign up to volunteer in different ways, and we're going to all need to step up together and do a little bit more there because of our situation. With all of that, then, uh, let's take take our Bibles and open to 2 Timothy. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, you can find that on page 995, and we'll be reading from verses 13 to verse 18 of chapter 1. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You can be seated as we pray. Father, take this word and plant it deep within us. Cause it to bear fruit. Collectively, we are aware that we need to hear your voice. So may your Holy Spirit work mightily in our midst as we look to your word. Help me to faithfully proclaim it. Help us all to faithfully listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps the great need of pastors today is that they be personally engaged in evangelism. If there's one thing that pastors today should not neglect, it's visiting the sick and the infirm. The key to successful pastoring today is establishing and keeping clear the vision of the church. Simply put, pastoring is vision casting. Pastors should, above all, prioritize engagement in the community, demonstrating to the neighbors of the church that they actually care for them. Pastors, if you don't know your people, you can't pastor your people. So the one thing you need more than anything else is to know your people. Have you heard enough? Now, at a certain level, we find ourselves nodding in agreement with each of these statements. Each of them, to more or less extent, has strong biblical warrant. Each reflects... Biblical priorities. But each statement went beyond simply stating a biblical priority. Each attempts to distill pastoral ministry down to its most important aspect. And in that sense, they cannot all be correct. So what is it? What is it that pastors and elders, teachers, ministry leaders should give themselves to? If we were to ask God's Holy Spirit, what aspect of pastoral ministry is the most important? What would he say? We actually don't have to guess. Because the book of 2 Timothy makes the answer quite plain. Look with me, I hope your Bibles are still open to 2 Timothy. In chapter 1 verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. 1 verse 14. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Chapter 2 verse 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man also who will be able to teach others. Chapter 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, or the minister, may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then there's chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing, and His kingdom. Preach the word. You hear that all? Sound work. Good deposit. What you've heard. The word of truth. Scripture. The word. There's a common theme there. What's the primary task that God is calling Timothy to in this book? Preaching and preserving a particular message. You see, the pastor's work is primarily about a message. And while that's true and clear throughout the whole book of 2 Timothy, it's especially true and clear in our passages. Verses 13 and 14 begin with Timothy being charged to preserve a message. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. Now, if you look at that, it actually sounds a bit unorthodox, a bit provocative. Follow a pattern of sound words. I mean, a a builder can follow an architect's plan. An eight-year-old can follow a Lego plan. But how are we supposed to follow a pattern of sound words? The essence of what Paul's saying is that Timothy should stay faithful to proclaiming the sound or, or healthy words that he's learned from Paul. But he doesn't just say, preserve and preach the same words you heard from me. He begins with a mental picture, an image, by saying, follow the pattern. In saying that, he's trying to put a picture in our minds. Here, here's the picture that might be helpful. You think of a little kid learning to form his letters. And his mother comes alongside him and kind of leans over him and puts her hand on his hand and helps him learn how to shape those letters by moving his hand accordingly. She's laying out a pattern for him. Here's a right way to do it, but I'm not just going to tell you, oh, go like this. I'm actually going to come alongside and show you the right way. Paul is saying here, he's bent over young Timothy. He's shown him the sound and healthy teaching and what it looks like. It's not just that Paul gave Timothy a book on preaching and said, read this. He didn't just teach a seminary course. He got into Timothy's life and showed him the pattern of sound words. And so here he's telling Timothy, follow that pattern, exactly what I taught you. Think back to Lois and Eunice, your mother and grandmother, who bent over you as a toddler, showing you the Scriptures. And as you grew up, I came alongside and guided that same hand, showing you how the Scriptures find their fulfillment in Christ. So you know the pattern. You know the shape and contours of that message. You know them inside and out, because we've laid it out for you. Follow that pattern. And then Paul adds a little phrase, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's because those who are changed by the message are those who will most give themselves to preserving the message. That is, if you are rooted in Christ, if you find yourself in Christ, in turn, He gives you a faith and a love and when you do that well, you're best able to preserve the message of Jesus Christ because it has, Christ has changed you. So this leads to a question for us as a church. What do we want of our pastors? What do we want from our elders? According to this passage, we should be demanding that they be people, that we be people who follow the pattern of sound words laid out by Paul and the apostles. That is, demand that we be New Testament men, demand that we be teachers of the Holy Scriptures. Verse 14 goes on to make the exact same point, but with a different picture. Instead of the image of following a pattern, Timothy's now charged with guarding a good deposit. Perhaps the image then should be riding shotgun in one of those old stagecoaches. And there's a a really valuable cargo on the stagecoach. You're going to be going through some bad places. And it's your job to guard the good deposit. Enemies are going to want to get their hands into it. We must guard it. This message, this deposit must get through unscathed. If anything happens to it, we're all lost. So we must guard it. Guard it with our lives. If you think of the message of the Scriptures, culture will blow hard against it, trying to make us alter our message. It must not be changed. It must be guarded. So-called Christian voices will needle and pry at it, attempting to make us alter the message. It must not be changed. It must not be altered. We must guard it. Or perhaps there's a desire for a growing platform, a bigger congregation. And so the praise of men will yank at our hearts, tempting us to compromise on the message. It must not be changed. It must be guarded. We must guard the good deposit. And when we read verses 13 and 14, we know it's though it's given to Timothy, it doesn't just stop with him. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the same language and imagery is used for Timothy entrusting that message to others who are entrusting it to others. So the words given here are true for anybody who's going to be handling the Word of God, who's going to be leading the church. Our elders, our missionaries, Our pastors, our directors, our teachers, all of us are charged with preserving this precious message. But what is the message? What is this good deposit? What are these sound words? Well, verse 13 said, they're sound words that you heard from me. In other words, it's a message that came from Paul. We learned a little, or it says a little bit earlier in the passage that, or just the verse previous, that this is a message that God entrusted to him. When you look at verse 15, he's talking about those in Asia who rejected the message, but he says, not that they turned away from the message, he says they turned away from me. You see, this good deposit, the sound words are the very message that Paul has been entrusted with, the other apostles have been entrusted with, and it's a message that's passed down for us in the New Testament. It's Paul's words, given to him by God, that we're to guard. It's the apostolic message, the message of the New Testament, which the Holy Spirit gave them, that we're to guard. Now, why do I say that? The essence of the teaching of the New Testament we call the gospel, which is the good news. This is a message that God sent Jesus to come down and rescue sinners. The Bible talks about a world that is broken. It's very honest about the mess and crud that is in this world, the pain we all experienced, the poison at work within us that taints some of our thoughts and our actions, really taints all of it in some way. It says God did something about this broken world. He comes down in his son Jesus to rescue us. But in order to bring about a new and good kingdom, which will be yet future, that's the eternal kingdom. He had to do something so us rebels could be a part of that good kingdom. You have this broken world and then you have God's redemption plan which includes Jesus coming and taking the penalty of our sins upon himself so that us sinners can be reconciled to him and be able to enjoy the goodness of his kingdom forever. That's the gospel message in a nutshell. And we could think that when Paul's saying guard the good deposit, the sound words, he's talking specifically about the gospel message. But Paul is saying that the whole teaching that he's entrusted to Timothy must be preserved. It's not enough to preserve just the gospel. The whole thing must be preserved. I was trying to think of a good way to explain this, and I think of uh, this beautiful credit river that we have run through our area. If you were charged with keeping that credit river pure, it wouldn't be enough to just focus on the river. If you wanted to make sure it stayed pure, you'd have to be thinking of what kind of chemicals are the farmlands near it using. What about the area of the valley and the forestation and the insects and the bugs and the animals that all live there? And how are we preserving that so that we can keep this river pure? Yes, the task is preserving the river, but to do that well, you have to guard all the rest. And that's how it is with the Bible. Fail to guard the whole counsel of God's Word. And the gospel itself will be affected. One cannot play high and loose with the scriptures. Without ultimately affecting the gospel message. So. One can claim to be a Christian leader. Or a Christian church. But if your efforts compromise and undercut the apostolic message we can't make cozy with you. Because our job is to guard the good deposit. And if you don't share that agenda, you're a threat to it. There's no Christian unity unless we're unified in proclaiming and preserving the Scriptures. Verse 14 calls us to guard the good deposit entrusted to us. But just as verse 13 pointed out that we need to do this, In Christ, verse 14 points out that we need to do this by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, we work hard at guarding the good deposit, but it's by the Holy Spirit that we're able to do that work. It's really the Holy Spirit who's at work. The same Holy Spirit who carried along the writer's scriptures will Faithfully guard the deposit. And he's going to do that through us or despite us. So we need to give ourselves to guarding the good deposit fiercely. But the means of us guarding it fiercely are to humbly depend on the strength and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. These are such important words for us to hear. I was trying to think of how we grasp the weight of it. I wonder if how many of you have heard of the great race of mercy. In 1925, tragedy struck a little Alaskan town called Nome. It was the dead of winter and an outbreak of diphtheria hit the town once the tending physician realized that it was diphtheria he knew this this part of the population has no resistance if we don't get the serum we need with the antitoxins it will probably wipe out everybody somewhere between 3,000 and 10,000 will all die but it was the dead of winter And not only that, there was a terrible blizzard that was setting in with temperatures of 50 below and hurricane-force winds. No plane could reach them. No boat could reach them. It looked like they were doomed. The nearest antitoxin was over 1,000 kilometers away. The Board of Health determined a plan using the postal system and the dog sleds associated with it, they would set up a relay all across those 1,000 kilometers of dog sledders who would would take this canister full of the serum and pass it along one to the next, one to the next, just so we could get the one thing that will save those people in Nome to them. We have to try. We have to get this canister to them. Now, this 1,000-kilometer trip In normal winter conditions, not blizzard conditions, would take about 30 days to be completed. But the serum couldn't survive for more than six days in those conditions. So these mushers were going to have to do everything in their power, not only to preserve this canister, but to get it there across those 1,000 kilometers in six days. And so they set up the relay. And each man gave his all. Many dogs lost their lives because they were being pushed so hard. The story of one man who had lost so many dogs on his sled, he got out, put the harness on himself, and pulled that sled through. There's another story of just one of the huge gale force winds turning over one of the sled, sled, and he lost the canister in the blizzard. And so even though it was negative 50, he takes his gloves off and starts digging around in the snow until he can find the canister to preserve that serum and get it to the people in Nome. There were two particular lead dogs, Togo and Balto, that took two of the final three legs. And time was getting short. These two teams Covered over 220 kilometers between them. That was six times longer than what would have been considered extreme mushing at that time. But on the sixth day, Balto led his team in. And when the physician examined the canister and took the antitoxin out, the serum was still good. And instead of thousands of dying, there are only a few lives lost. The two verses that we've just looked at are basically saying that we are on the great race of mercy. There is a message that this world who's stuck in our sin, stuck in the brokenness and crud of this world, needs to hear that God has actually done something about it, that He has redeemed us, that He's pulled us back. They need to hear that message. It's the one thing that can save them from being separated and cut off from their Creator, still in rebellion against Him, and bearing not only in this life, but for all eternities the full weight of the consequence of that. There's only one message that can, that can save them. So we need to be like those mushers. We need to give everything we can, do all we can to preserve, to preserve that message and to get it to the people who need it and proclaim it. But just like it was for those mushers, our work will be costly. That's what verse 15 is telling us. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are a and homogeneous. Now, the Asia mentioned there is not present-day Asia. It's basically the area that would be present-day Turkey. But there's a reason that Paul says what happened to him in Asia. Because that's where Timothy is when he's writing him this letter. So verse 15 isn't some random biographical detail. It's a sober warning. Yes, you have a task to guard the good deposit. But remember, the people you're ministering to will reject this message. The work is going to be hard going. And the pain and rejection won't just be out there. It'll be personal. It won't just be all of Asia. It'll be the jealous and hermogenes. Some of my saddest moments as a pastor have come when people I loved who I walked through very difficult things with who I poured into veered from sound doctrine to chase after compromised messages. So whether it's something that's culture-wide or deeply personal God's telling us here in verse 15 to expect the message will be met with hostility. Here's why. Because God's message has always, always been the prophetic counterpoint to the lies of prevailing culture. God intends His message to be a prophetic counterpoint to the lies of prevailing culture, not a religious echo chamber to cultures cherished, Ideals. I know there are some of you here today who are not followers of Christ. when well, just if it's all right, just say a word to you. Our pattern as a church is just read through a book of the Bible and proclaim what's there. We are a church that's committed to faithfully proclaiming the prophetic voice of God's word to our culture. And insofar as we're faithful to what the Bible says, I can tell you this. What you, hear, what you hear here will be an altogether different voice than what you hear from anywhere else. I mean, of course it would be. If it really is God's voice, it's not going to be just parenting what men have come up with. But here's what I also want to say. Anybody can come up with countercultural things to say. Just because we're saying something that's not in keeping with wider culture doesn't make what we are saying what God's saying. Because I think if what we're saying is really God's voice, it will ring with a certain power and weight that no man could create. This is what I want to say to you. Keep coming, check it out. Evaluate it. Keep listening. Because I believe if, if this message contained in the Bible, if the apostolic message is God's word, I think that will become clear to you. And you'll know God is speaking. So then back to what I was saying to all of us. God's called us to be a prophetic voice. He's called our teachers and our elders and our pastors to be that prophetic voice. And those who speak that prophetic voice won't always be thanked. You shouldn't sign up to carry God's message. If you're going to be deterred by bitter cold and frostbite. Exposure to blizzard conditions and hurricane-force winds. Because that's just part of the job of getting the serum to those who need it. And if that's true, then we need to grapple as a church with these questions. What kind of church, Maple Avenue? What kind of church will we be? What kind of elders will we appoint What kind of pastors will we call? What will you expect of us? What will you call us to? Will we be the prophetic voice our culture so desperately needs? Or are we going to go the way so many churches have and find a gospel light message that still talks about Jesus and His love? but caters to our culture and compromises on hard truths. Let us pray and let us labor so that 20 years from now and 50 years from now and God willing 100 years from now this church will still have a prophetic voice even when all of Ontario's walked away from the apostolic message. The serum must be preserved. It must be delivered. It is a matter of life and death. But I can tell you that can be tiring, tiring work. There's so many times as a pastor that with slumping shoulders, I've looked up to God and told him, I just can't do it. My shoulders aren't broad enough. My heart is not big enough. My mind is not smart enough. My day is not long enough. You get the sense that's how Paul was feeling when he wrote 2 Timothy. Look at how he ends the letter in chapter 4. It's like the most depressing little note from the great apostle Paul here. Starting verse 9, tells Timothy chapter 4, 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Take a kiss I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against You get it he's ragged. He's run down because it's hard work, it's lonely work. sometimes it's thankless work. And that's why it's important to keep in mind that in verses 13 and 14 it's not ultimately our work. we do it in Christ. we do it by the Holy Spirit. And God's Spirit will do what's needed to sustain us. He will refresh us. And that's why in verses 16 through 18, Paul reminds Timothy of one way that God had done that for him. Through Onesiphorus. I said it right that time. Onesiphorus. Who searched earnestly for him throughout Rome. You can just, when he says that, you just think of this guy going to Rome to try and find Paul and he knocks on a door. No, we don't know where Paul is. Nope, nope, we're not. Because no one wanted to be associated with Paul, but he keeps looking and he keeps looking, searching earnestly because he wants to encourage him. Paul strengthened him through Onesiphorus who, Paul says, was not ashamed of my chain. Paul says, often, often refreshed me. And what a difference that made for Paul. May God grant mercy to his household. And when the day of the Lord comes, may Onesiphorus experience great mercy on that day. God was refreshing Paul. In his hard work. And I think that brings us to what I think is the main application of this passage for our church. You might have noticed that much of what I've said addresses Timothy and those who the apostolic message has been entrusted to. People like elders and missionaries and teachers. But actually throughout the book of 2 Timothy there are two groups addressed. There's Timothy and those who teach, but there's also those who listen to teachers. So yes, in verses 13 and 14, Timothy is addressed. But in verses 15 through 18, the response to faithful teaching is addressed. And that pattern holds up. You saw it when I was reading chapter 4. There's this pattern of the teacher and what he's supposed to do, but the response to him. The most notable place that is, is just a little in chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4. This is a negative example, but look at what it says. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound, same word, sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So yes, there are people like Anisiphorus, Who will do all they can to aid and encourage the message going out. But there will also be widespread rejection of that message. So the question is for most of us as a congregation. What kind of listeners will we be? What kind of congregation will we be? Are we going to be the kind that is just looking for anybody who will suit what suits our passions? Or will you look for people who are faithfully holding out the counsel of God's word and then be like Anisiphorus to them? Now, as I say, I'm applying this to us. I want to tell you that I wish every pastor had a congregation like this. I have been more encouraged than I can put words to. By the way, you have encouraged me. By the way, you've responded to the word of God preached. By the way, you come alongside and give wind to my sails. And the Brakes have talked like that. The Carringtons have talked like that. The Secchies have talked like that. The Laidlaws have talked like that. And the Taylors, yep. There's a nod from the Taylors as well. You do a great job of taking care of us and encouraging us. So I thank you for being that. I just encourage you to keep at it. But also I want you to think about our elders. You know, as a church, we, you know, our culture uses the term pastor and elder like they're two different things. But biblically, our elders are just as much pastors as everybody else. And they work hard. You know, this is my full-time job, so I can work hard at it. Those guys, they have another full-time job or some of them are at a place where they're retired and their bodies can't go as hard as they sometimes did. They work hard. So encourage them, pray for them, be anisophorous for them. But we want to do it more than just for our own, don't we? That's why it's beautiful. This is a passage we're on before the week of Simeon Trust or a whole church, is. We've, money you've put in the offering plate is going to help put on that event. So many of you linking arms, I encourage you to pray. Those men come to our church and have for the last three years and walk away saying, Maple Avenue loves us and is strengthening us. They walk away energized and emboldened to get after this very task because of what you do for them. This fall, we'll be taking on two Liebenzell workers from Germany, two German girls, who are considering giving their life to ministry, but even if they don't, are going to be giving themselves to the church in Germany. How are we going to, for the year we have those girls, love them and encourage them and be like a Nisiphorus to them? We have in our church a training fund that allows us to take people like this year Eric Nielsen and right now we're reviewing applicants for next year and take those young men or perhaps young women and pour into them. Shape them so we can send them out as word people. Maybe our church should change its name. From Maple Avenue Baptist Church to Onisiphorus Baptist Church. Okay, maybe not such a hot idea. If I can't even pronounce it, then maybe that shouldn't be our church name. But wouldn't it be beautiful if that's how our church was known? As a church that just came alongside who are those across Quebec, Ontario, the GTA found people are faithfully proclaiming his message and bless them and encourage them. Think about our missionaries. First, of course, we want to make sure that the missionaries we support are the types of people who are doing this kind of work, faithfully preserving that message and getting it out in the context of local churches. But when we find such missionaries, and many of our missionaries are that, I'm not trying to say when we find because they aren't that right clarifying let's be onisiphorous to them i mean so much more than just you know they get a a check from the church once a month they're doing hard good work we want to bless them And let's resolve to be people who gather for ourselves, not teachers who will itch our ears, but teachers who faithfully herald God's prophetic message. I told you the story of the great race of mercy, and I liken that to our task to preserve and proclaim a particular message. But there's actually a much better story that most in our church are familiar with. The story of one of our own missionaries, Reza. A man who was living in Iran, lost and hopeless in the darkness of Islam. And then in God's grace, he allowed Reza to hear the gospel. He was able to hear the undiluted apostolic message. And it turned his life upside down. It filled him with hope. It showed him that there was goodness in this world. That God was doing something. That he as a sinner didn't have to just work harder at being good. And pursuing his own self-righteousness to fit in the culture. But that he could lean on the righteousness of Christ. And so he said, I have to, I have to get this message to others. And so he began actually printing up passages of the Bible and distributing that. And then he started smuggling Bibles into Iran and getting them out. And he knew this carried the greatest possible risk. But he'd go around in his little moped with a few of his friends, distributing the Scriptures anywhere he could. And eventually, because of his work, he, he was caught. And he was brutally mistreated. The authorities released him just long enough so they could see who it was that he made contact with. And then they were about to capture him again. He got wind and he was able to escape the country. Why did Reza give himself to making that gospel message known even when Iran was so hostile? Why did he risk his very life to distribute the New Testament to the people around him? Or perhaps even better, now that he's escaped and he has strong English and Western connections, why doesn't he make a great life for himself instead of laboring in Georgia to train Iranian pastors to go back with the, to Iran with the gospel? Well, he told us when he was with us a year ago. It's because he's found the only sound words, the only healthy words in the whole world. He's found the good deposit. He's found the one cure for the diphtheria that was ravaging his own soul and which he knows is destroying all of the people in his country that he loves so much. And that message is worth preserving and proclaiming. Elders of Maple Avenue, Congregation of Maple Avenue, may we, by the Holy Spirit, guard the good deposit entrusted to us. Let's pray. Father, may we be an Onesiphorus-like church. Church that cares so much that this message get out. That we do all we can to support and encourage those who are giving themselves to that task. May the fruit from this church be dozens and even hundreds of faithful word ministers all around the world. In Quebec. In Ontario. In Iran. In Nicaragua. We can't do it. We can't do it just by fighting for it. We must do it by your Holy Spirit. So work in us and through us. May we be people who labor in prayer. May we give ourselves this task.